the seemingly invincible Spider-Man goes up against an all-new crop of villains, including the shape-shifting Sandman. While Spider-Man's superpowers are altered by an alien organism, his alter ego, Peter Parker, deals with nemesis Eddie Brock and also gets caught up in a love triangle. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bottom of the bin. Welcome, everybody, to another wonderful episode of Bottom of the Bin. I'm Matt. I'm Ben. And today we're talking about Spider-Man 3. You know what? You know what, what? People say that this is the worst Spider-Man movie. I think it's far from it. I don't know if it's far from it, but I definitely would argue that it's not the worst. Mm -hmm. I think that spot belongs to Amazing Spider-Man 2, Electric Boogaloo, but this... This is a bad movie. It is. It's definitely the worst of the Sam Raimi trilogy. It falls into the trap that a lot of great trilogies fall into, where you have two great movies, and then a third one that's just um, just the worst. You got your Godfather trilogy, your uh, Star Wars, the Star Wars sequel trilogy, and then you also got ones that where it's the exact opposite, like Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. Where three is the absolute best. But this, yeah, definitely a classic trilogy syndrome. Yeah, I find this is a very easy film to dissect as far as like why it doesn't work. Yes. And I think that's part of why like when people think of bad superhero movies, it's it's this one. It's kind of like it's kind of like in Phantom Menace how everybody pins it on Jar Jar Binks. Even though he's just one of the many problems with that movie. In fact, I'd say if you took him out of Phantom Menace, you'd be stuck with nothing but mm-hmm. boring, lifeless characters. He is he has the most vitality of any of any character in that movie. I wish I wish I had made that observation myself, but that was uh Cosmonaut Variety Hour. It's a great YouTube channel. Strongly recommend it. But yeah, this movie it's very obvious what the problems are. Yeah, it, it it almost feels like when they sat down to like talk about this movie. So Sam Raimi and his writers and producers are like, okay, the third one. What do we want to do in the third movie? It's like they had a lot of great ideas, and they just tried to cram them all into one movie. Well, originally, Venom wasn't part of the original story. Okay. That was something that Sam Raimi, he was attached to the idea of making a more morally gray kind of take on Spider-Man. So like having it so that Spider-Man learns another side of the villains that he goes up against. So it's not just like good and evil. I'm going to read you a quote that I found on the Wikipedia. This is from Sam Raimi on how the character Peter Parker developed in this film. Quote, the most important thing Peter right now has to learn is that this whole concept of him as the Avenger or him as the hero, he wears this red and blue outfit with each criminal he brings to justice. He's trying to pay down his debt of guilt he feels about the death of Uncle Ben. He considers himself a hero and a sinless person versus these villains that he nabs. We felt it would be a great thing for him to learn a little less black and white view of life and that he's not above these people, end quote. And I agree with that. Yeah, and that that idea is there. And even in the final product, you can see that idea. And like, I give this movie a little 
more credit as far as like the uh, overstuffed villains. That's something that everybody points at this movie for. I think on paper it works as like the idea that if you give in to vengeance, then you pay the price. Like he he hasn't made just one enemy. He's made I'd say two because by the time he exacts his vengeance on. Harry, uh, he's pretty much incapacitated until the final fight when he's a good guy again. Right. But yeah, I think the problem with that is that you slice the villain screen time into thirds, and then what you get is three decent villains, but that doesn't equal one Dr. Octopus. There's these different storylines going on, and all of them have things that work and don't work. It's like everything could have been better if they didn't have to share the screen with everything else. Like Sandman, his origin story, like when he, like you see him breaking with his daughter, so they kind of set him up there. And then his first scene, like where he's reaching for the locket, and it's like he's just like his first time where he's now all sand. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, yeah. That's really done really, really well. And the CG there holds up okay. Yeah, when you see the grains at first, it's kind of hokey because the texturing is a little simplistic. But yeah, but when it transitions into that sequence, it's not. I'm not even like yeah. The sand particles are pretty convincing, but the the whole uh, execution of it is very uh, emotional. Mm-hmm. It gives weight to his character that definitely like thinking on like what I was reading about like Sam, Sam Raimi's attachment to him originally. You can see his fascination with the character. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, he said, it was, he was a very like visually interesting character. But I think there is also like that whole subplot of him with his daughter. Sandman isn't like that in the comics. He's he's a petty thief, right? But they decided to write this whole uh, backstory that connects him with Peter, and I think that works. It does. I, although it kind of bothers me that they like rewrite what happened in the first movie. Like, that's not set up at all, and they're just like, no, it actually... Because I feel like that kind of negates if in the first movie, the guy that he goes after isn't actually the guy who killed Uncle Ben. That does just kind of negate it a little bit, but it does still work for this movie. That storyline works pretty well, but then he goes away for a while, and you kind of forget that he's part of this movie because now the focus is on the love triangle or the multiple love triangles, and now we're getting to learn more about Edward Brock Jr., And then he comes back and he, I was like, oh, right. He's a part of this movie. I kind of stopped caring about him because there's all this other stuff. You're talking about love triangles. This is more like a love Toblerone. Yeah. Because you got, you got Peter with MJ and Harry. And then you got Eddie Brock Jr. and Gwen Stacy. Not to forget, you can't leave out that random girl who is like, Lives across the hall, his landlord's daughter. (laughs) All right. Yep. She was the ticket holder at the beginning of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. There's your fun fact. Um, this movie definitely gets by on the Sam Raimi corny charm. When when people talk about like the weaknesses of this movie, I don't think it has anything to do with the direction. I think it's everything to do with the screenplay and just how overstuffed it is. I saw a review on Letterboxd where somebody compared this movie to the guy in the movie Seven who like engorges himself until his stomach bursts. That's the movie for him. <laughs> when I started watching it, I was like, okay, this is fun. 
I am enjoying this. But then as it goes on and on, it just it gets exhausting. And there's just a little too much, I think. We're talking about how there's like all these different subplots. I was thinking an analogy. This movie is like, remember Loot Crate? Oh, yeah. Loot Crate, a subscription service. They send you all these nerdy things, socks and little toys and keychains, useless junk. But it's all put into this box. It's like, ooh, what am I going to get? This is the movie equivalent of that. It's a bunch of nerdy things all crammed together into the semblance of a movie. The thing is, though, that as far as like the basic structure and the themes, I think that holds the movie together, question mark? The problem, though, is that it puts our main characters in a position where they are unlikable. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go back to Thomas Hayden Church for a second because I like his sort of acting method that he seems to do in this movie where no matter what the emotion of the scene that he's in is, he will do the same facial expression for every (laughs) kind of emotion. It's the wide eyes. Is that sarcasm or... A little bit. It's 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 weird though because it, you do buy it, but then I notice when he's grateful that Peter Parker's forgiving him at the end, he's doing the exact same face that he looks at Venom, where he's like, "Yeah, I'm in." The eyes are wide, the mouth is sort of like open a little bit. His acting coach was probably like, "Okay, remember George of the Jungle? Don't do that." <laughs> yes, he is stone faced. No pun intended. For the villains in this movie, I've kind of been debating in myself, like, how many and what qualifies as a villain. So Harry Osborn is a villain for part of the movie. There is Venom. Like, there's the alien. There's an alien in this movie. It just pops up. It just pops out of nowhere. Well, I mean, it comes in from the sky at the beginning, and it splashes onto Peter's motorcycle, and then it takes over Peter, and then it transfers, which we'll get into that because that's very convenient. They both happen to be in the same church. That's right. The Thomas Hayden Church. (laughs) So there's Sandman, Venom, the alien, Venom, the when it takes over Edward Brock Jr. And then there is Harry Osborn. So that's three sort of four villains if you count the two Venoms. But then I would argue that there's another villain in this and it's coincidence. I thought you were going to say the screenwriters, but that works too. There are so many things in this movie. It's like there's four people living in Manhattan because they're always running into each other. Right. Yeah. Well, it's I I, I give it the credit with this uh, Pixar when it comes to their screenwriting. They have a rule that coincidence can only happen if it's against convenience, which Finding Dory takes a big old shit on that rule. But (laughs) we'll say as far as things happening that lead to inconvenience i'm okay with because i mean that's movies and that's a lot a lot of uh, big drama happens from that if it's a cog in the wheel i'm okay with it this though i think like everybody uh, thinks of like when we talk about overstuffed movies this is a very good example Mm -hmm. also uh mj in this movie i'm just picturing if i was a kid who like really loved spider-man And I go to see this movie in theaters, and half of the movie is about MJ getting fired from her Broadway play. Which, by the way, like, does serve the story, and it works into the love triangle plot there. But do you really need to see her sing that entire song? Which, by the way, was not bad. She can sing. It wasn't bad. (laughs) I guess the whole thing was her volume. They said that her voice couldn't carry. But they said in the review that that she wasn't 
very nice on the ears. She was good on the eyes, but not on the ears. <laughs> but then it was just that she didn't sing loud enough. And then they fire her. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how Broadway works, but this is one of the reasons why I stick with community theater. <laughs> I mean, yeah, normally you wouldn't after, although that's probably not at the opening night. That's probably a preview show. But at that point, you probably have a contract where it's like you're in once you're that far into production. It's too late to fire them. She should be thankful that she wasn't in the Spider-Man musical. <laughs> yes, because then she would probably have broken her legs. This movie is a pretty decent comedy. Yes, J.K. Simmons is fantastic. As usual. His little bit with the pills. <laughs> yes. It shows, I mean, it shows that J.K. Simmons can play. I mean, obviously we know by now what a talent he is with like Whiplash and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. with this, even in this like, zany character he shows such a good grasp of levels with that with that pill joke where he has to like calm down and be like thank you yeah <laughs> yeah he's a comedic genius so when venom and uh sandman are attacking the city and he doesn't have a camera so he sees a little girl with like the dollar store pink barbie camera and he's like how much for your camera a hundred dollars yeah. And then he begrudgingly pays up and then he finds inside there's no film and she's like, film's extra. <laughs> if you're a kid watching that now, you're saying, what's film? <laughs> this movie's so nostalgic. Yes. But yeah, it's, he's great. Another thing I want to bash on because I find it hilarious is Harry's amnesia is very specific. Yes, it's very plot convenient. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so the movie can happen, Ben. I, yeah, I get that. Oh, and then the other really ridiculous thing that I just found like laughably bad in this movie is the butler at the end. First of all, terrible actor. <laughs> and there's actually in the blooper reel, you can go on YouTube and find the blooper reel of this movie. And he couldn't say the word glider. Oh, my God. And they did like so many takes where he's like, the marks on your father's body. Clearly, we're from his Gilder. Sorry, oh Glider. <laughs> and it's so painful to watch. Um, oh, man. It's like the guy is having a stroke as he's doing the scene. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but the fact that he was apparently there in the first movie, knew all of this, watched Harry go through all of these things thinking his best friend is responsible for his father's death, all the physical and emotional injury. He watches all of that happen over the past two movies. And now, just now, he decides to tell him, oh, no, your father's death was his own fault. Yeah. I mean, he has that line where he says about how, like, he knows he wants to protect his father's legacy. So I guess in the screenwriting process, they probably thought... Okay, he's not telling him because he wants to preserve his father's honor. Because if he tells him his father killed himself just being a jackass, then that tarnishes his memory. But it's also like, yeah, this a lot of bad stuff could have been prevented if he spoke about it. You know what I'm going to say, though? I'm going to say that Bernard has memory problems. Okay. And just kept forgetting, kept forgetting to tell him. Is like, oh, did I tell him? Yeah, I think I told him. That's also very convenient. Yeah, Rolko's very convenient memory loss. Convenient memory loss is the theme of this movie. Yes, but I feel like what also is to blame for that is that they just 
didn't have enough time to give that the wrap up that it needs that Harry right. Peter animosity storyline. Another subplot in the movie is the Harry Peter rivalry and they just didn't have enough time for Harry to come to that place where he's able to forgive Peter or accept the truth. There was a point where Alvin Sargent, one of the screenwriters, he was saying about how he found the script so complex that he considered splitting it into two films, but abandoned the idea when he could not create a successful intermediate climax. So I guess the intermediate climax is um, MJ breaking up with Peter. I guess, but I mean, if that's the end of Spider-Man 3 leading into Spider-Man 4, that's pretty depressing. Or no, that's the low point. Yeah. that The, the intermediate climax would be, um, I don't know, so much shit happens in this movie. Would it be when, when Peter <laughs> struts down the street <laughs> to the tune of James Brown? <laughs> oh, man. That whole scene is, such, is a meme right now, and it's it's a treasure. At what point does the alien Venom start taking over Peter? Because he is a jerk throughout the movie. And I want to say that it's like that's the like it's starting to take over him. Or maybe that's just the fame is getting him to to, because fame is another one of the many themes in this movie because they deal with MJ being jealous of Spider-Man's fame. And Peter's just being such a jerk about all that. Like she's upset about this review. He's like, well, let me talk about Spider-Man now. Well, I see where he's coming from, like trying to relate to her, but he obviously doesn't understand that her situation is is negative or his is positive. Like, oh my gosh, I have so many fans. It drives me crazy. Whereas MJ, she's just a burgeoning actress. She She's just getting started. I think you're giving him too much sympathy. He, she's well, like, she just got fired and he's like, I'm going to talk about myself now. Well, it's not like I think because we have a like degrees of jerkiness in this movie and like compare that to to when he like intentionally goes to the restaurant where she does her waitressing and jazz singing and flaunts Gwen Stacy in her face. It's almost like when it's like, oh, Trump did this terrible thing, but today he did this even worse thing. So that other thing doesn't feel quite so bad. <laughs> So I get, I get where you're coming from with that. With this, yeah, we see the fame getting to his head. Like He doesn't even consider the implications of doing that upside-down kiss with Gwen Stacy. So yeah, he, is, he does some jerky things. I just find those things more understandable as his character um, and where he is in this stage of like being the hero that everybody admires. I get the ego going to his head. It's the stuff where you have something else influencing him where it's like now it's just getting cartoonish the whole idea with the symbiote is as uh dr connors says it amplifies aggression like amplifies feelings but especially aggression right yeah he says which i found really interesting and they kind of just gloss over that that whole thing like could have had way more attention paid to it because it's kind of like it just goes on the back of his bike so they're just there also was it did it land right next to Peter and MJ because it's looking for Spider-Man? Like, it doesn't answer that. Or is it just a coincidence that they happen to be there and he happens to be Spider-Man? It's pure coincidence. It's it, just like it's pure coincidence that Flint Marco runs into the particle reactor thing. It's all stuff that's just there to get the movie going. And I find, like, it's weird 
because at first the plot points come out of nowhere and then they converge and then it starts to work. But I think this movie has a really long middle act and a very short third act. Yes. Like the climax just like before, you know, oh, oh, Mary Jane, she's in danger. The venom serum, whatever space alien goo thing. It gets on the back of Peter's cheap motorcycle. And then there's no mention of it until like an hour later. <laughs> and so like days have passed. And I guess it's just been like chilling in Peter's apartment. <laughs> just what? That's that's the Marvel used to do these little short films that would be about like, what's Agent Coulson up to during Thor? But then in this one, it's uh, it's like, what's the Venom symbiote doing in Peter's apartment? <laughs> That'd be a fun little short film. Yeah. But then finally it's like, I guess I better go and get him now. Yep. Oh, he's he's pissed off enough now. It waits until he's in a really rough mood. And it's like, ooh, oh, I'm feeling I'm in the mood. But I wonder if it's because it just now it had its perfect opportunity because it wants to take over him when he's wearing the suit because then it can somehow change the color of the suit, I guess. But he's sleeping on top of his blankets in his Spider-Man suit. Are those pajamas? Like, they don't look comfortable. No, he says in the second one that it isn't comfortable. It kind of itches, I think. He gets in the elevator. Yeah, yeah. It rides up in the crotch. Right, yeah. So it's not comfortable. (laughs) Well, his whole thing in that scene right before it is that he's trying to find any reports of the Sandman. Because he's out to kill him now that he knows he's the true killer of Uncle Ben. So he's just sitting waiting. And I think he just fell asleep in his suit. So that's the idea that they're going for there. But yeah, it could read a little silly. I'm willing to give the movie credit as far as the underlying ideas. I think it's just the execution that is either um, easy to misinterpret or just flat out embarrassing. See the uh, dance sequence. (laughs) So I don't know the comics at all. Gwen Stacy, do you know if she is a model in the comics? I don't, but given just how conventionally attractive uh, a lot of the females are in these movies, right? it's not surprising. As far as making her the damsel in distress, it doesn't surprise me that they would objectify her. Yeah. So I just found, like, I'm no fan of, although I'm sympathetic towards the first Amazing Spider-Man, I don't like it. I can just kind of see you almost had it. Almost stuck the landing. Yeah. But, like, Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy was, like, she was, like, a chemist. She was a scientist. She's kind of like Peter there. She's really smart. And in Into the Spider-Verse, she is Spider-Man. And she's the best at being Spider-Man of all of the people in that group. I like that they kind of make her that. Right. So I guess it's a question of because throughout like comic book history, there's all these you can do all these different interpretations. So it's it's a question of did did Gwen Stacy start out as the damsel in distress and then did somebody be like, I'm going to do the feminist approach and make her a kick ass hero. But then all the other iterations of her I've known have been after this. But it just seems weird to see her just like, oh, she's a model. 
Right, yeah. So I think with the other changes they've made in this story, like the Sandman being connected to Peter's past and Spider-Man's webs coming out of his hands, it doesn't surprise me that they would they might make some changes. Because I think this is before the whole idea of like a cinematic universe. So as far as like making a series of movies... Like, the mythology is almost insular. It doesn't have to extend anywhere past the movies. The problem, though, is that these movies being so popular, people will assume what a character is like based on the movies. So, like, I'm sure Daredevil wasn't very popular after the movie came out and like Catwoman, good God. <laughs> it's critical, the representation of, of these characters. And I'd say the one that got dealt the worst hand in this movie is Venom. Yeah. The design of Venom, like in his final form with Eddie Brock is just, especially you compare it to the the Tom Hardy Venom and it just looks so scrawny. <laughs> it feels like a deviant art concept. Peter taking off the venom suit and being like no more like he realizes after he after he decks mary jane in the face <laughs> he realizes that he's going too far with this and then he goes to a church which i guess is symbolic of forgiveness absolving your sins and then you got eddie there he was in the same church yeah praying for revenge so i can i on a thematic level I can turn a blind eye to the coincidence of it. Um, even though there are many churches in Manhattan, <laughs> it is very convenient that he went to the same one. Yes. Also, I want to go back to that goo because we talked about this earlier, but we didn't really get into this. Is it, 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 There is an interesting thing that the professor says where he goes, this chemical stuff has a tendency to amplify characteristics of its host. Especially aggression. So it's not changing Peter Parker. It's just bringing out things that were already inside of him. It just hangs out in Peter's apartment. <laughs> and it just conveniently is when Ed, Peter's life is falling apart, where MJ is getting jealous and all this kind of stuff is happening. So it's like, ah, perfect timing. Yeah, although not perfect timing. There is pacing issues with this movie is another big problem with it. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not until, like, we get the opening credit sequence and then we see, like, Spider-Man swinging in his Spider-Man suit. But other than that, we don't see Spider-Man in his Spider-Man suit till, like, at least a half hour into the movie. Right. It's all, we got to watch MJ at Broadway. Yeah, yeah, I love that. If there's one character I definitely love without any reservations, it's Mary Jane Watson. <laughs> She is by far the best character in these movies. Here's the thing. I love the first movie. She's not as bad in this one as she is in the first one. I would strongly disagree. Okay. So in the first movie, Norman Osborn, it is his funeral. This is Harry Osborn's father. So this is MJ's ex-boyfriend's father's funeral. And she decides to make out with her ex-boyfriend's best friend at the funeral for her ex-boyfriend's dad. Okay, yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I do side with Peter a little too much sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's just with this one, they both do some really shitty things. And that's part of what I think brings this movie down is that 
it has to bring out the worst in its main characters in order to instill conflict. Like, it turns out Harry isn't actually the least likable character in this movie. It's actually, it's debatable whether it's Peter or MJ. <laughs> it's an unfortunate consequence with all of this bloated conflict where it's just like these two end up dealt the worst hand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With the theme of fame is that, so like Spider-Man's getting the key to the city and there's this whole ceremony that is very bizarre because it's no way this, I mean, I guess this is a Spider-Man movie. So like Spider-Man's not real. There's no way this would ever, any of this would ever happen in real life. I'm glad you uh, reaffirmed that <laughs> for our reality confused audience. But the fact that he like he swings out, he gets the key and it's presented by Gwen Stacy, who's a model who's also happens to be like this police chief's daughter. And then when they give him the key, the audience randomly starts chanting, kiss him, kiss him <laughs> or kiss her. I don't remember which one it is, but like why this is a municipal handing out like this key to the city ceremony. It's not like a night club or a strip club like they're just saying and then but then there's the one kid being like no spider-man no and i'm like yes that kid knows what's up that kid knows <laughs> that this is a terrible idea no I don't you're think... committed to mj <laughs> but it's because of cooties yeah and then it was kind of bizarre now that i think about it <laughs> it's so messed up it's not that messed up but the thing is is it would be maybe okay if the venom had started taking over peter at that point uh well like mj's right when she's like okay so she's your lab partner you just kissed her like all of these things going on it's like yeah she has a right to be like hey who is that girl yeah i i would get that i'm and i'm not saying like it's unreasonable though that peter would do that given just how the fame has gone to his head it's not a completely irredeemable thing i think hitting mary jane across the face that's where i'm just like okay movie i've had enough of this this is a good time to win us back because you're doing a really lousy job right after that cringy dance sequence and now this it's like oh yeah that's a whole thing that's a whole thing but before we get to that and the dancing peter there is almost as much screen time of this movie dedicated to dancing as there is to fighting but before that, when there's the photo shoot and there's the crane out of control, it's like the first time we see Spider-Man in action and it's like almost 40 minutes into the movie. So Edward Brock Jr. is there and he's taking pictures. He's got the long lens. But before he looks into the camera, he looks up and they say she's something like 40 stories up. And from the naked eye, he's like, oh, my God, it's Gwen. He can tell from her pink shirt. Oh, by the way, I'm dating your daughter. So they just happen to be right next to each other. In New York City. He just happens to be next to... In one of the most populated cities on the planet. And he just happens to be right next to her dad, being like, oh, I'm a photographer for the Daily Bugle, also dating your daughter. Fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't really play into anything in the story. I think it's just a funny little coincidence thing there. Topher Grace in this movie, as far as like him playing Venom... I don't know how everybody feels about that, but I really liked him as far as like the douchey foil to Peter. Like he's really fun to hate in this movie. And I think he plays that off well. I think it's just when he becomes Venom, it's too little too late, you know? Right. Well, it kind of felt like later on they were trying to make him sympathetic, but at first he's such a jerk. You just love to hate him. But then it's like, because... 
what Peter does to him is what Harry did to Peter. Yeah. So and I was like, am I supposed to be sympathetic to this guy I've hated throughout the whole movie? Yeah. And it's it's tricky because the whole idea with this movie is like, don't give in to hate, at least to the dark side, that kind of stuff. With this, though, so the whole thing with, uh, with Eddie Brock Jr. is that he doctors photos of Spider-Man to make him look like a criminal. That is actually bad. Yeah. And as far as Peter exposing him that's not inherently bad it's i think the movie's point is that he did it out of vengeance it's not a wrong thing to do we're not put in this position where we have to sympathize with eddie brock but he just has that little moment where he's like please man i could lose my job it's like well yeah you could lose your job because what you did is wrong (laughs) and then i'm also thinking like the other thing that peter does to him that they say in this movie is he stole his girlfriend but now i'm realizing no wait they say that she says that they just went out for coffee like once that's right also he says a line in this movie he goes i know more about photography than anyone in this town in this town you mean new york city are you sure about in the that entire new york city and all of new york city eddie brock knows best if you're like all of the top fashion He's lying, Ben. Live He's in a liar. New York or Nashville. So that's... He's a liar. <laughs> yeah, but that's not even believable. Well, his whole thing is like he's using different tactics to appeal to J. Jonah Jameson. Right. And then the one that actually works is playing to his ego, working for the best newspaper editor of our time, J. Jonah Jameson. So it's like, sure, it's cartoony, but J. Jonah Jameson is a cartoon and we love him just fine. That's the thing with these movies, like when people make all the jokes about Bully Maguire meets the Avengers and stuff like that, it's because these movies come from a different era of superhero movies where it wasn't bogged down by brooding darkness. It was more just campy fun. Like even with the darker stuff in this movie, it is still bananas how silly it gets. Like, (laughs) need I say more with the dance sequence? (laughs) Oh, yes. With this, it's like this is still in that beautiful era of campy, corny superhero movies that we didn't really see again until Shazam. Right. Which is another directed by a horror movie director, I believe. That's right. Horror directors make for great comedy directors. Mm hmm. Because they're very much the same, like, there's similar psychology as far as, like, shocking and capturing an audience. Also, the other thing with this, so what happens is, like, in the start of the movie, they go to the Broadway play, then they go and, like, make out in the spider web, and then he decides to go and visit Aunt May and tell her, and this is the same night, he visits his Aunt May and tells her he's gonna ask MJ to marry him. It must have been the fall, maybe the sun had set really early. Except a Broadway play starts at, like, 730 at the earliest. It was a matinee. It was overcast. So it's so then it was dark at three o'clock in the afternoon. It's not it doesn't get that time in the It fall. was very, very overcast. <laughs> no, it was <laughs> it was nighttime. So This takes place in Antarctica, don't you know? I, I'm assuming it has to be at eight PM at least if it's gonna be that dark when it's such going a cinema sins thing here. <laughs> <laughs> and the Broadway play is what, maybe two hours? So then they spend how long making out in the web? I and think then... it was the next day. It's I think be it, two... I think he no, because it's still nighttime out the window. This is like two in the morning. 
Uh, I don't think he was actually on his way to propose to her that night. He was coming back home. Yeah, he's not on his way to propose to her. He's telling his aunt, I've decided to ask MJ to marry me. Right. Okay. So all he did was wake up an old lady at like, <laughs> at the earliest, like 10 in, at night or three in the morning. <laughs> I feel like it's it's got to be at least 2 a.m. with everything that's happened. Right, right. Because he would have had to drop MJ off. And also, this is New York. It's not just like you, oh, a 10-minute drive up. Like, anywhere you want to go takes at least... Like, to get across the street takes at least 45 minutes in New York. Yes. I, I remember I when I went to New York to see the SpongeBob SquarePants musical, I foolishly decided to go everywhere via city bike. And that's a nightmare when you have to figure out where to park the stupid thing. So in that sequence, after he tells Aunt May that he's going to marry Mary Jane on the bike and uh, Harry swoops down and they have the whole fight sequence, which is a pretty good sequence because the ring is like there's some good stakes there. Like he has to make sure he doesn't lose it, even though he probably could have just put it on his finger or put it in his backpack. There's really a hundred other ways he could have carried that ring <laughs> so that it wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't be such an ordeal to carry it anyway movies drama so they're they're going through that really thin alleyway and it just stretches like <laughs> super super long like it's it's one of those things where it's like this is this is gonna go on as long as the visual effects artists want it to all right i gotta dip out all right but um we'll we'll continue because there's this movie there's so much to talk about we'll be right back welcome back everybody uh, we just took a 14-hour break. So, um, talking about Spider-Man 3, there's so much to talk about with this movie. And so many, like, I feel like this is a movie that if you're going to enjoy it, you have to enjoy it for the sum of its parts. Um, because as a whole, it does not work. It is an unsatisfying experience. And it's a shame that this was the last movie in the trilogy because it does end on such a bittersweet note. I don't think anything really was earned in this movie other than like Peter getting this more nuanced understanding of morality. But I don't know. The rest of it is just like it takes away so much. Yeah, I think that at the end of the movie, like the emotional weight that you're supposed to feel, you do feel somewhat but i think that there's would have been either a much easier way to get you to this point and a point where it feels like a much better conclusion to the trilogy and that's the thing is so far this is the only spider-man franchise to get three movies true just before the break i was talking a bit about uh rosemary harris and how much i love her in this movie and maybe she doesn't carry the movie but i would say she is like the soul of the movie in a way that like when she comes into the movie it's like oh i forgot this is a bad movie and i don't care that this scene is so poorly executed because i just love her character so much and her scene where um peter toby mcguire is doing his whole crybaby spider-man thing like i hurt her aunt may what do i do and she does the line first you have to start by doing the hardest thing of all you must forgive yourself like revisiting this movie for this podcast was the first time i had watched that since probably i had seen it in theaters that scene is something like that i remembered from seeing it in theaters as a kid and i would like think about that quite often so that scene really stayed with me and, like, there's other parts of this movie that have stayed with me. And that's part of why I say I prefer it over Amazing Spider-Man 2 and even Amazing Spider-Man is that I've seen those movies far more recently than I had seen this one. 
but I still, this one I had much more of a memory of. So at the end of the day, it left an impression on me. So I'll give it that. I would say probably the one of the reasons why that leaves an impression on you specifically is that it ties most effectively with the theme of the film. Mm-hmm. And upon Wikipedia inspection, that seems to be what they were going for. The Amazing Spider-Man 2, I don't know what the theme is. There is like 20 different plot lines. You think this movie is overcrowded? Amazing Spider-Man 2 is two and a half hours of a quote-unquote movie. <laughs> yeah, it is like channel surfing. There is so much going on. Yeah, I I can't say this was a thoroughly frustrating experience. I think I think for a lot of people, it's just because Spider-Man 2 brought the bar up so much. People, people call that like the godfather of superhero movies. And it's pretty great. Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2 are, I'd say, like on par with Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back in, in the context of superhero movies. They're still corny as fuck. <laughs> yeah. And that's something we can all appreciate about this era of superhero movies where they were just coming out of that Batman and Robin feel, you know, where it's like the campiness just swallowed up the entire movie. And we're not quite in the uh, Dark Knight phase of, uh, of superhero movies where things get brooding just for the sake of brute not to say that's what the dark knight is it's more to say like a lot of movies after that were very reactionary like they saw the tone of the dark knight and nothing else and just became like dark brooding stuff so that's where this movie it's kind of stuck in the middle between something that wants to be the cheeky corny um superhero movie but it also is trying for the darker more brooding themes right it doesn't know if it's a spider-man movie or batman movie at times that's that's a good way to put it yeah where like the guilt and the trauma start to really weigh in on the movie and it really is the the dance sequence that's a good representation of the disconnect between those two types of movies It's like, we can't have both. Another thing I'll say positive about this movie is it might be my favorite of the Stan Lee cameos. It is very sweet. And it's been great for montages to like tribute him after his death. It's because it now has a different context where it almost seems like he's talking about himself when he says sometimes one person can make a difference because he did. Enough said. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Enough said. I have a feeling that because in his... Endgame cameo, which I believe was his last one, the bumper sticker says Nuff said. And I like to think that they put that on there like after he died Mm -hmm. to be like, so referencing the one person can make a difference. He was that one person. That's that's a good way of putting it. I know they filmed a bunch of his cameos beforehand. You want to know the biggest thing that this movie leaves me wondering, like that it doesn't feel like it wraps up? No, but tell me anyway. (laughs) Do they ever fix that door? (laughs) that's the big cliffhanger i feel like that's my favorite of the subplots in this movie is the broken door and it's i guess it's more of a recurring joke because it comes in threes and there's like the different variations of it so i guess it's more of a recurring joke than a subplot but at the end of the movie i'm like wait the door they never fixed it i think it's supposed to be just one of the many straws that will eventually break the camel's back because there's just so many frustrating things that happen to Peter. But they could have done like their usual 
Spider-Man ending montage. They do the opening narration. So everything's great. And then all the problems happen. Everything's back to being great again is usually how a Spider-Man movie works. So they could have had a moment where it's like in that montage, Peter Parker fixing the door himself. Yeah. This one, like because of the ending, it feels more like it should have been the second film because then the third can be a happier resolution. Usually the third movie in a trilogy, like if it's going to follow the uh, like the Star Wars format where you have the first movie introduces the characters, the second puts them through a really big challenge, then the third is like the ultimate resolution. Like they all have their own stories and stuff, but the third should be the most satisfying. But this mm-hmm. uh, is the opposite of that. Uh, I looked it up. At the time, Spider-Man 3 had an estimated production budget of 258 to $350 million. It was the most expensive film ever made at the time of its release. And I'm looking at it now. It is still the most expensive Spider-Man movie. Really? So this was more than Far From Home? Yep. I find that hard to believe, but interesting. They knew how to cut their costs. Yep. And just for those curious, the most expensive movie ever made as of now is Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, which is so tragic because that movie is a big waste of time. It's such a nothing of a movie. Yeah. So wait, what was the budget of that movie? $379 million. Think of what you can do for $379 million. You could probably solve world hunger with that much money but no they decided to go make pirates of the caribbean whatever number it is the fourth one the one that nobody likes and it's funny too because avengers endgame isn't even the most expensive avengers movie it's avengers age of ultron just by like another Mm. nine million it goes to show that like not all movies that look to have the biggest budget necessarily do because there's lots of things that go into it. If they're filming in other countries, that's just inherently more expensive. Or if sometimes the crew just needs more money and stuff. Or just if there's a troubled production that doesn't necessarily affect the end product, that still just is money down the drain. Or if someone has to take a bathroom break, that pee break costs the studio like $2,000. That was something my (laughs) acting teacher said to me once because we were in rehearsal when I was in theater school. And someone's like, hey, can I go to the washroom? She's like, yeah, sure. While they're gone, she's like, just so you know, in this industry, she says this to everyone else, time is money. And that pee break just costs the studio $2,000. And the director is looking at you saying, never again. (laughs) That's incredible. I think Hollywood is so magical. I do find that interesting, though, that this was at the time the most expensive movie, because you look at it now, it just feels like you don't see the money on the screen any more than you would with, like, the first or the second Spider-Man. I think, at least with the visual effects, yeah, there's improvements. There was only one moment that was kind of jarring to me. It's when Peter is putting the metal bars up to kill the Venom symbiote. And because they are using the CGI Peter, because they got to do this like sweeping 360 shot around the symbiote, you can see Tobey Maguire's face deep faked onto (laughs) this CGI version of himself. Yeah. Another thing I want to point out, one of the funnier characters in this series is uh, Hoffman. He's the guy that's always sucking up to J. Jonah Jameson. Oh, yes. I love him. Uh, That's Ted Raimi. I met him in a uh, record music store in downtown London. 
Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He was wow. he was over for like Four City Comic Con or something, and it was this record store that it was doing like an all nighter horror movie marathon, and he showed up, and I saw him, and being the idiot I was, I'm like, "Are you Sam Raimi's brother?" <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, "Yes, I am." <laughs> and I had no idea what else to say to him. <laughs> Maybe are you Ted Raimi? Don't be like you're. You're. I. I, know I didn't you know his name. Brother. I couldn't remember his name, Ben. That's why I just, just say, "Hey, Raimi. are you the guy in Spider Man?" I I know, movies. but I was I my starstruck idiot brain was working, not my actual thinking brain. But anyway, he sat in front of me when we were watching the thing and he was eating from this little time bag of popcorn right before his uber came in and uh he went off but it was like that close to spider-man it was really cool i met he's like probably in his 40s now but he was the original gavroche on broadway from les mis like the little boy yeah and he was also like he's still a broadway performer he was in jersey boys I think he was like the longest running Frankie Valley, so he sang like Sherry Baby something like four thousand times, which is nice. kind of crazy. And then he was in like he was just in that musical about Carol King. So his name's Jared Spector. He's a cool guy. Let's talk a bit about the unintentional comedy. I love how they try to make Peter this like emo version yes. of himself. His first instinct after he kills the Sandman is he looks at himself in this like broken mirror in the alleyway and he's like I'm going to make my hair all unkempt and with this like emo little hair right in f- my forehead yeah that's more my style Toby Maguire cannot play a bad boy no it's yeah it, it, I think that really just does come down to casting and I'm like maybe Andrew Garfield could go more in that um, I don't think Tom Holland could. No, 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 no. Just based on what they did with Homecoming, which was like, we're going to do all the things that the Spider-Man movies haven't done before. Like, I don't think they would touch that kind of tone with a nine-foot pole. Yeah, I will say this, though, about, like, I love Tom Holland. He's great. I do think he's a little bit too likable sometimes. What an interesting problem to have. He is too <laughs> likable. <laughs> I think that I like in this that Peter is such a nerd. And I guess this was at a time before, like now it's kind of cool to be a nerd. But in the early 2000s, it was an entirely different view of nerds. And like in this one, like people are still like, hey, Peter, like he's kind of like a popular kid at school. You don't get as much of a sense of he's like an outcast. Right. And. I'm guessing, though, that they're also playing away from the trope of the nerd and the bullies. Like, you take Flash Thompson in the MCU. He's not really, like, a bully to Peter. He's just kind of a jerk, and he's actually a bit of a nerd himself. So I kind of like the different angle that they take with that, just because it's something different. We're not going to do the same... Like, oh, Peter's a wimp, but now he has superpowers, so no one's going to mess with him. It's like we've seen that before. I can watch the first Spider-Man on Netflix. I don't need to see the same thing again. I just think that, like, Tom Holland is a good spot in the middle for Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Tobey Maguire is great as Peter. Andrew Garfield is great as Spider-Man. Tobey Maguire is pretty good as Spider-Man. Andrew Garfield is not 
a good Peter Parker. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. Oh, he's such a he's such a loser with his cool hair and his symmetrical facial features and he rides his skateboard. What a loser. Such a dork. I think it's just as far as the characters themselves, maybe Topher Grace was not the ideal choice for Venom. But then again, maybe Venom was kind of shoehorned into this movie anyway, so it doesn't really matter. I think a lot of the problems really do come from the screenplay. Yeah. And just trying to shove in so much crap. It's like, you know what this is like, the villains in this movie? Uh, It's like those Street Fighter kind of games where you have three characters that you just switch in and out of. It's like, oh, this guy's out for the count. Let's bring on this guy. Uh Uh-huh. I think I've I think I'm done making uh analogies for this movie. <laughs> I think I've said everything I need to say. Just wrap up what kind of entertainment value is this movie? Is it so bad it's good? Is it a mixed bag? Is um, it I don't what is it? I would say there's parts of it that definitely are so bad it's good. As a whole though, it is so boring. <laughs> But there's also parts of it that are really good. Like, there's stuff in this movie that's unironically good. Yeah, like some of the comedy. The comedy in this movie is really good. Yeah, and what I kind of feel like as I'm watching this movie is you're seeing glimpses of a better movie that almost was. I'd say Spider-Man 3, it shows the worst aspects of the trilogy. Like, MJ, I do not... I do not like MJ as a character in this trilogy. And this shows the worst sides of her. It's all the corny cheesiness brought up to such a level that it borders on cringe. Like, I think for a first-time viewer, Peter strutting through the street to the tune of James Brown is utter cringe. But if you're somebody that's into, like, the the dank memes and stuff, it's comedy gold. (laughs) Yeah. So this movie aged like a fine wine. (laughs) Oh, you know, no, it's like it's like Howard the Duck, where it ages like milk, but then that milk turns into cheese. <laughs> so a lot of the great movie memes age like milk. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the quote we'll put on the Instagram. This movie has aged like milk. <laughs> Sounds good. And I feel like I have aged like milk uh, in the process of talking about this movie. So I'm going to say, wash your hands. And watch your movies. See you, chumps.